Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 215, and today's guest is Senefer Mendoza, founder and general partner of Mendoza Ventures. You hear about lots of venture firms who are working hard to build a strategy and network that will yield more investments with diverse founders. But for a firm like Mendoza Ventures, it's rooted in their DNA, like literally, as it is both minority and women-owned, and it's the first Latinx-founded venture fund on the East Coast. As you would think, their portfolio has impressive diversity numbers. As of the beginning of this year, 67% of the portfolio included investments in minority, female, and immigrant founders. Needless to say, we were able to talk in detail about the venture industry and what other investors can do to back more diverse founders. Mendoza Ventures was launched five years ago by Senefer and her husband, Adrian. The firm is focused on making pre-seed investments in fintech, AI, and cybersecurity. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of other great topics, like Senefer's background and interior design and what she learned as an operator, how Senefer and Adrian got involved in tech investing, all the details on Mendoza Ventures and the types of companies they are backing, advice on how to build a career path into the VC industry, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that you can get customized job alerts delivered to your inbox every day? It's a great way to keep informed of the thousands of jobs listed on VentureFizz and have jobs from a specific category sent directly to you. Don't let that career-defining opportunity pass you by. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash register to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Senefer. Senefer, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because you're doing a lot of amazing work as an investor. You're a founder and general partner at Mendoza Partners. And one of the key things about your firm that just stands out, and this is something I want to talk about first before we even get into your background, is there's a statistic on your website that says 75% of your portfolio has invested in minority, female, and immigrant founders. Wow. You know, so that's such a meaningful statement in today's day and age. So what can VCs do? to fund and support more diverse founders? We get asked this question a lot. Good, <laughs> we well, that's good. As, and, and I think diversity is always prickly. Within that 75%, there's still a lot of work that we have to do to make our companies and especially our firm more inclusive. Um, and, and the answer is really simple. They have to write the check. And if inclusion yeah. were easy, I think we wouldn't have to have this conversation. Um, but But... That's our not trying number. Those are the founders that found us because we have a diverse investment team. Um, and so that's now our number to beat going forward. And we're short on female founders. We need more female founders. We're very open about the mistakes and skin needs that we've gotten along the way and the work that our portfolio companies and we have to do. There's no easy answer of, oh, if you just find this area of pipe or what have you, it is a, it is a constant effort to make sure that you're expanding your network out as far as you can. And then writing checks to people who are different from yourself and different from people who you would hire naturally. And that's hard um, because it takes you outside of your comfort zone. But I promise it'll be okay if VCs just write the check. <laughs> yeah. And in the longer term, it's going to pay off. Your, your portfolio will probably exceed the limited scope of if you just have a lane and you're not thinking diverse, you're limiting yourself as far as what companies you're investing in ultimately. Exactly. And the narrative has found us much more than we expected it to when we opened the firm. Um, I'm always the most hesitant to talk about anything because I'm the white woman on the team and my co-founder is Mexican-American. And I never wanted to sound like, you know, he decided to start a VC firm because he's Mexican-American. Like he just really wanted to do this and I really wanted to do it with him. Um, but it does, you do have to get outside of your comfort zone and make sure that your entire pipeline of how you vet a startup is cross-checking those bias. So you have to get through a technologist and a finance person and a marketing and sales person who are from diverse backgrounds in order to get a green light from us. Got it. Okay. Well, let's talk about your background. So uh, I like to go way back. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? I'm from Cape Cod. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. um, I was born in Boston. And um, as a child, I was, I feel like my mom would have a different answer for this. (laughs) I was the perfect child. (laughs) Um, I was inquisitive and social as a kid. um, And that definitely manifested itself in my career. 
And then I had the fortune of my parents moved around a lot when I was younger. And I think that that helped a lot in my current job because by the time I went off to college, I was ready to do so. And I had already lived in several different cultures. I lived in Arizona, Northern California, the New England area. Um, and that gets you outside of your comfort zone. And so I had habitually been planted in different areas where I had to learn how to adjust and thrive. And that sets you up for success in any career. Great. So then you attended, um, you ended up going to college at UMass Amherst, right? Mm-hmm. W- what did you study there? Um, I studied community action through art or arts management in undergrad. UMass has this really great program where you can design your own degree. And mm-hmm. I just, that's what I wanted to do. Um, at the time, I felt like art was definitely where my career was going to take me. <laughs> it was a couple of years ago. Um, and I wanted to round out the skill set that I needed to have a financially successful career in art. So I did some management classes, some urban planning classes. I was a carpenter and a welder to pay my way through undergrad. Um, and I, and I put all those things together into a degree with a Spanish minor. <laughs> wow. That's so cool. So, so, so what did you do to pay through school? Like you were like welding and like, like for art. Yeah. So UMass has a good theater program and I, um, and I worked in the scene shop. And the reason that I chose theater was that, and this is actually a really good story of financial inclusion. And one of the reasons that we're so passionate about financial inclusion is that I could pay my own way through college. That was an option. I graduated undergrad in 2004 and you could still, as a, as a Massachusetts kid, get through UMass and pay, work two jobs and it wasn't comfortable or easy, but I was able to do it. Right. Um, and so I worked in theater because you could work until two or three o'clock in the morning. And then I could make it to my 9 a.m. classes. So I could work during the day in the scene shop on campus. As a, and I, I started out as a junior carpenter and welder. And by my senior year, I was training up teams and things like that, which I think just broke my concept of how much you can get done in a day because I always had a team of five people with me. Um, and then um, at night, I would go and work in Northampton. There's a few different music halls. And I'd either bartend or wait tables or... Um, do load-ins and load-outs and all that kind of stuff for the different theaters there until about 2 or 3 a.m., depending on the day, a couple times a week, and then hit class the next morning. Got it. Okay. So definitely, uh, you know, burning the midnight oil, no pun intended, right? Like you were, you know, out there hustling to obviously support your degree. And what do you you think that does as far as uh, setting you up, as far as, you know, the foundation of, of how you are as a person? I think it, readjust your concept of risk because there just wasn't I had amazing parents who are incredibly loving and supportive but there just wasn't a safety net there so if I failed out of school that was not me and I still had to pay for it Um, and I and I think it made me much more comfortable much earlier making some broader strokes of my life and adjusting with those consequences and it let me get you know all those early mistakes out of your system earlier so that when I sat down to later on open up a venture capital firm, I had a really solid concept of who I was. I know what I'm good and bad at, um, and I'm comfortable with those boundaries. And I'm used to working with people who are very different from myself. And all those things helped us create the success that we have today. So what did you do coming out of school, like first jobs? First jobs? I, uh, I moved to LA right away. Did you really? Good for you. <laughs> I did. And I worked in theater and film there for a little while. And after about okay. two months, I knew for sure I did not want to live in LA full time. <laughs> <laughs> it was not as cool in 2004 as it is now for VC, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and then I came back to Boston and I managed the traveling exhibits at Boston Children's Museum. And Boston Children's obviously has a huge education mission. And so they're very comfortable taking young people out of college, suffering them with amazing people. Um, Amy Auerbach is still their head of finance, and she was an amazing support to me when I started, and giving them big jobs. <laughs> and so I managed the entire traveling exhibits program, both what we had out on the road nationally, and then all the exhibits that come to Boston um, at the age of 22. Wow. And that was great, because I was given a million dollar a year business and said, figure it out. <laughs> and there were grownups there that I could ask questions of and things like that. Um, and then I, I left that and went to grad school and got my master's in interior architecture. 
Very cool. So, so what was the thinking of, of studying that? Like, obviously you probably had some professional goals in mind. Um, inclusion has always been a big part of my life. I'm, I've always been really passionate about it. Um, I was a sailor in college and I taught sailing um, to Special Olympics participants and things like that. And so I love the museum world, but it just ha- it has always struggled with being inclusive. And I had this great project management skill set and this great artistic eye. And I wanted to um, create environments that people could use without necessarily buying a ticket or what have you which is funny because that's why I started. And then I'm also fiercely competitive. So I ended up designing four and five star hotels internationally mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, in my career, but which is not the most inclusive practice of that, but I found other areas in my life for that. Well, if you look at your LinkedIn, it's like some impressive, like the Fairmont Copley Plaza, like uh, just some really, really nice hotels, but um, that's, that's tough work though. Yeah, it is, but it's also... Um, I mean, it's just fun. <laughs> it's, it's just a lot of fun. My first project out of grad school was the Copper Plaza. Okay. And um, and coming from a New England family, like my great grandmother entertained at the Copley Plaza. It was it was just mm. fun to do it. And in terms of creative flex in the hospitality industry, that's where you get to have, you know, that's where you get to own the outcome of something. Mm-hmm. So what were you actually doing? Like what was your role within that? renovation or whatever the firm was assigned to do. Mm-hmm. So usually we were given a set budget and then a hotel with a lot of really big issues. <laughs> so if you think of like HGTV hasn't done that industry any favors because it's incredibly complex project management. So it's right. everything from pitching to Marriott that we should spend $20 million to turn something purple because I had a really good reason for it to getting everything there on time and installed and navigating all of the bumps that happen along the way. Anyone who's ever renovated anything knows that nothing ever goes according to plan. But when you have a set budget, it actually turned out to be incredible training for startups because you cannot spend more than $20 million halfway through the summer. Half of your furniture is not coming from China. Solve that problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Expect the unexpected. Yeah. And it still has to pass code. So. <laughs> well, and, and that's why like, it's a hard job because you're working with these, you know, major hotels that they still need to keep their business operating. Not only are their expectations super high, right. Cause they're very demanding. I would assume they should be because um, they want to provide the best for their, their guests and they got to keep their business going while this renovation is happening. I would think at least part of the hotel is still going. So it just seems like it would be very, a, a, a tricky thing to, to juggle but something that it was a foundation for you to learn, you know, budgets and large project management and how to keep the customers happy and uh, the guests happy at the same time. And how to, I mean, you've noticed a lot of hotels look the same, right? Part of the reason for that is that to get something through committee, 30 people have to sign off on something before it gets built. And by the time you get any project through 30 people, it's no different than engineering in a large corporation. It looks bland. (laughs) You know, really good UX is not spicy design. They're two different things. And so sales was also a huge skill that I got out of that because, you know, as a young professional walking into um, Ritz-Carlton and saying, you really need to spend $20 million to change the colorway. And here's why. Um, was fascinating and and just you just get over all those internal hang-ups and you just do your job there's not a lot of um, room for anxiety or things like that in that profession and so it was good to just work out the kinks in my project management and sales cycle early yeah I mean one of the other hotels that you have listed is the Congress Street Residence Inn which that is such a beautiful property and like I've stayed there multiple times and it's just a uh, it's a very different experience and it's, uh, I think it's, you know, definitely one of the better residence inns that I've ever stayed at. So kudos to you of whatever you did on that project. Cause it was amazing. <laughs> it's always a big team. Um, and I was at, you know, there's always a, at least five designers on every project. The tricky thing about that one was that in Boston, that yellow brick was developed in Boston around 1912. Um, and so it's a historical artifact. 
And so you can't drill into the existing walls of the hotel to install anything. So everything inside that structure basically had to be ballooned up inside of it. I also found out in our research for that, that that's where the Red Sox used to play before Fenway. So I feel like it's just a cool corner. <laughs> I don't know if I saw it. Like, like they do have, uh, you know, pictures up of, you know, what it was prior and stuff like that. So that's amazing. That's so cool. Now, then you went, like you started your own design firm, right? Like your own interior design firm. Yeah. So um, Adrian, who's my partner, was a user experience expert before he was a venture capitalist as well. And so while I was doing basically antiquated design processes, he was literally writing the book on user experience. It's called mobile user experience <laughs> <laughs> next to me, like across the table. And I just kept looking at the two and being like, why is this like this? And so, um, so I opened up Mendoza um, Design along with him to really marry the two and start bringing really good user experience practices into the three-dimensional world and into user experience from the moment that you Google something to when you first walk in the door, which is a, a much more commonplace concept now than it was a few years ago. And it was really interesting to see the hospitality industry start to adopt those practices of okay, I knew we should change the colorway, but now I can back it up by if we elevate, you know, a guest heart rate by a certain percent, they'll check out a little bit earlier, which will make your housekeeping staff less burnt out and all those kinds of things are all intertwined. Right. So that, yeah, that must've been challenging because it is an industry that's kind of, you would think would be set in their ways. And this is a little bit disruptive and thinking about things differently. Right. But in the long run, it pays off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. So you did that for a while. So, so what, like, what was next? Like, how did you continue along the path of starting your, uh, or keeping your firm going to the point where you decided to start a, a venture capital firm? Yeah. So, um, Adrian had two startups in our living room while I was, while I was working at Mendoza design and those startups needed a CEO. <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's a good CEO looking around the room? How about you? <laughs> And, um, and also just to be totally transparent, I had our son and oh, working okay. in design as a parent, um, the construction industry is antiquated in more than one way. <laughs> okay. And so, um, when I got pregnant with our son, they actually moved my desk into the basement of the firm that I was working at, <laughs> like underneath the stairs. Um, and so I had this amazing opportunity of there were these nimble tech companies in my living room that were applying everything that I was passionate about that needed the skill set that I had, or I could keep designing and, you know, wait 40 more years for the construction industry to do its slow boat turn, which it is, but it's taking a while. Um, and so I left and I decided to, to CEO the two startups. At the same time, because it was a startup and um, it was a great job that they couldn't afford to pay me yet. <laughs> I, got, I got equity. <laughs> um, we, I, I worked for Mohawk and I helped them rehabilitate part of their Eastern sales pipeline because for sales and construction, you always want the designers because they're knowledgeable about the products and all that. Um, it's like having Sarah Jessica Parker sell you shoes. That's who you're going to trust. <laughs> yep. um, and so, so I worked on that and, and really honed those sales skills at the same time. And so those startups um, grew and exited and we had a good base hit exit. And that's the nest egg that we used to start our venture capital firm. Now, did you just start like doing like uh, angel investing before you like formalized it? Or like, how did you even get like, this is a key part of what I wanted to talk to you about. Like, how does anyone even start a venture capital firm, right? Like, because uh, it's not like you came out of venture and you see a lot of VCs, they leave a firm and they start their own fund. Like you mm -hmm. came at it more grassroots of entrepreneurship to building a fund. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, one of the major barriers to inclusion in VC is that you start a venture capital firm by writing a check. And so that's exactly what we did. Um, I think that part of the reason that we were so successful in our, I think grassroots is a good way to put it, is a, in our grassroots approach of doing it is that, um, is that we were willing to get very uncomfortable to write that check. And so when we got our payout from our startup, we kept ourselves on startup salaries. We didn't expand our house. You know, we didn't do any of that stuff. Um, we saved up that little nest egg and we, we wrote a check. And so that's, that's how we started. And we were not, um, we appreciate angel investing, 
but there were a few things we wanted to, we knew that we wanted to advocate for the startup on a cap table from the beginning mm-hmm. um, and not be part of necessarily that early pool. Um, and so we set out to do that. And the first fund, so what we call fund one was a series of SPVs that was four investments across three companies. And we proved out our thesis with that. Where the thesis came from was that we had not been VCs before, but we had experienced a lot of VC. <laughs> right. um, and we had been through that process. And one of the big issues that we wanted to solve going in was, could we unite the advice that the startup was getting along with the capital? So we were held accountable to capital at board meetings on a quarterly way. Um, and then we had advice that was whoever we could get coffee with or whoever was willing to sit down with us and give us some time. Our angel investors are great at this, but those two boats were not going in the same direction all the time. Mm -hmm. And so we said, well, what if we could have more transparent capital and align the advice that the startup is getting with those who are accountable for success so that you're getting the best advice that someone can give? Because if you own a chunk of that company, you are, you are caffeinated for that phone call. Right. (laughs) Um, and make sure that the startups are getting what they need. Because I think like every entrepreneur, we made some bad decisions just because we didn't know any better. We recovered and we did okay. But I can think of a couple of times that we could have saved about $40,000 if we'd had a friendly <laughs> that we could have called to say, you know, what should I ask this developer? What do you know about them? Do you have anybody better? So a lot of what we've created is making sure that our CEOs have a phone number that they can call on a bad day and not just on a good day. Yeah, and that's the key too. It's the bad days where they need you the most. The good days, it's like, hey, things are going great. You know, we're seeing growth. It's the bad days where it's like, we could really use some key advice to help us through this challenging time. Yeah, and save them the cycle of trying to fix it before the board meeting. Right, yep. You know, because everyone wants to look good in a board meeting. <laughs> and um, and so so stop playing whack-a-mole, you know, and, and use the industry expertise. I mean, even last year, we had someone come up to us that said, oh, hey, we invested in your startup and we just didn't know. You know, through no fault of the VC, it's just that your capital essentially comes from a black box and we had no idea who was on the other side of that. And the VCs that we had were great, but they didn't think to connect us. Got it. So how did you know, like you mentioned, Hey, we, you know, we definitely made some mistakes. Like, uh, when you're investing in companies, how do you stay disciplined on what to invest in? Like, I know if it was me, I would have a tendency of to fall in love with every idea. Cause I'm sure every entrepreneur comes in passionate. They're going to you know change the world. And you're like, uh, okay, this sounds amazing. Let's do it. And then all of a sudden you're like, we already depleted all of our capital. We just like, so how do you stay disciplined and know this is our lane. This is what we should focus on. We started fund one with the verticals of AI, FinTech and cybersecurity because we're geeks from Boston and that's what we could vet easily. We're staying out of biotech. I literally failed biology in high school, so it's not a good idea for us to (laughs) dip our toe there. (laughs) And I can be as passionate as I want about it, but I'm not going to write a check to it. So I think one of the things that we did was we set our rules clearly and early and we all agreed to them as a firm. And so we checked each other against that a lot. Also, we make sure that, you know, I, I get, if it were up to me, every female founder would get a check. There's just no, I'm biased towards female founders. And my entire team knows that. So we cross check each other and say, okay, yes, this is a great company. Yes, Jennifer is a female founder, but we are not investing in a B2C product company or whatever it is that I happen to find that day. Um, And so we, we cross check each other a lot. And we also have really different skill sets that we respect in each other. So Scott is a partner and he is a amazing financial guru. Um, He understands banking infrastructure. He understands international business in the way that I'm still learning. Um, Adam too was a FinTech entrepreneur and then also had a great banking background. Adrian is a technologist entrepreneur and I am the sales and marketing person. And so you can charm one of us if you play to our strengths, Mm -hmm. but you can't charm all of us unless you have a good company. Yeah. So you've got the great balance between the four of you of doing the right level of due diligence and scrutinizing that uh, investment before you actually write a check. We also spend, our diligence process is very different. So we spend two to three months with a company before we write a check. So we're doing a larger check, a larger size check at the pre-seed or seed earlier. 
And so instead of doing two weeks of diligence by an associate that then advocates to an investment committee to red light or green light, they get assigned to a partner at the firm and they do a weekly or a biweekly phone call where we check in with them and see how it's going um, and help where we can. Our whole diligence process is based around help or get out of the way. <laughs> so if we, if we know it's a no at any point, we tell the founder right away and we step out of the process. Um, hopefully even they have gotten something helpful out of it, whether it's an introduction or something like that. Um, and so in that two to three months, that also keeps you from falling in love with someone. You've dated long enough. It's a hundred years. <laughs> like something's uh-huh. broken. People have cried. People have called you like in glee at that point, And you, you know what's happening with the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, and that's very different. Um, it's surprising more VCs don't do something similar because of that, you know, it's such a major commitment and the length of time it's probably going to, could be a 10 year commitment, right? Typically. So um, if you're deploying a hundred checks out of a fund, you can't, you can't do that. If you're going to invest in a hundred companies in two years, there's just no way to do it. So that's why we came in with the bigger check sooner is we'd rather take the loss on the front end before we write the check than on the back end after we've written it and just build that loss into our model. Got it. So what, uh, what fund are you investing out of now? And like, what is that typical check size that you tend to write? Mm-hmm. So this is fund two. Fund two is a $10 million fund. And our typical check size is 500 to 750 K at the pre-seed or seed. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, we've done a little bit earlier and a little bit later sure. within the fund for mm-hmm. great companies on both sides. Um, and we are, the fund is still open. So we're at 10 million. And we have a green light from our LPs to oversubscribe. We had a bunch of LPs that were mid-flight in December. So we just did an extension. And I actually just got the green light to announce that Carta just came in as an investor, which is really exciting for us. We're so glad to have them. That is awesome. That's awesome news. And it's such a good strike zone where that type of capital, um, you know, it's just such a key part of a company to just get things going. So, and are you typically um, investing with other seed firms as well? We have a great network that spans from London to Silicon Valley to Toronto. Mm -hmm. Um, We tend to be fintech heavy. So we're, you know, we, it's what we know. And Adrian worked in banking for years. And so we're very comfortable with those companies. And so our co-investors tend to as well. Um, We've co-invested with Barclays, Luge Capital, Breakaway Growth, um, a bunch of others, but it's a good network. So, so what are you excited about right now? Like the, like, what do you think are areas that you're, you know, whether it's thesis-based investing, you talked about industries, but like, what are there particular topics that you're like, uh, this is the type of thing that I'm really paying close attention to right now? I am really excited about all the things happening in financial inclusion. <laughs> Genuinely excited about it because, I mean, if you think about my story, I could go to UMass and I could pay it off eventually working a fairly normal job and that is not necessarily the case anymore. And so it's really interesting to see um, the West Coast and East Coast takes on financial inclusion and to see, you know, I think it's getting a lot of attention in the media right now, which is great, but it's also getting a lot of um, flack, I think, from banking institutions and things like that. And um, and it's, it's interesting to see how that how that is all going to play out. And I'm just loving the, the talk about money that's in the air right now, because I wish we had been this open about it when we were younger. <laughs> <laughs> True. Um, so what do you think are, are opportunities to solve that problem? Like, are there trends that you're seeing that could help with that inclusion piece? Yeah, I think that um, access is obviously one thing. And I think that responsible access is a trend that I'm seeing come up, which I really love. So Finch is a great example of this. It's a company that we invested in and it's a checking account that invests in ETF so that you can maximize what's in your checking account. So you have access to um, either a risky or conservative investing strategy that is um, a series of ETFs and bonds that you select. And from there, even if you have $20 or $40, you're already an investor. You're You're off to the races. You don't have to save up $5,000 to hand it to an investment house. Um, and the fee structure is really responsible. And it's that take on it has been something that I have sincerely loved me get through product development and then release an application. 
Um, so that's one side. I think on the other side, you have Robin Hood and everything else where things are you can just do, which I think is great. But I think ignoring the education side of it, I have a Robin Hood account, but I'm more financially educated than the typical user. And so I think if you take those guardrails off completely, then it, it becomes chaos in some sense. Whereas if you marry the education component, um, you have real potential there to have people make different decisions in an area of their life where it could really impact their outcomes long-term. And I think that that to me is really interesting, watching our whole industry figure out which one's more ethical or is it in the middle? And how do you apply those guardrails in a responsible way so that you're not decreasing returns, but you're empowering people to do their best? And like, I mean, Robin Hood's the one that gets all the headlines these days, but there's so many others that are innovating in a similar capacity. Like, um, you know, you've got Stash, uh, Public that just announced recently that, uh, I mean, they're, they're just doing, you know, giving access, like you we were talking about here, the theme. And instead of having to, you know, buy one share of Amazon that is very hard to afford, you can buy a slice of it and still own part of Amazon. So I think it's, uh, it's really cool what, what companies like that are doing. So, so what's the best way to, to get on your radar or, or one of your partner's radar? Um, you can reach out to us. We're all on LinkedIn. We don't have this thing up where you have to know our email. Like you can just message us. We're right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're on Instagram or you can, if you have a deck that you want to send in, you can send it to partners at mendoza-ventures.com. Um, and we just massage our process a little bit because we've been getting a lot of decks in. And so we're having our intern help us refine all of that um, to make sure the partners aren't doing the, is it in the thesis or not <laughs> first pass. And then from there on in, it gets right to a partner. And like, you, you know, typically you see a lot of deals to make those just few select investments. Um, so, so I always want to know if, cold reach out is a like, like how much of the cold reach out that ends up in a meeting that ends up in an investment compared to the intros? Um, we are getting more intros because we've just been in the business longer. And so I can see how that happens. And I think that that is part of the inclusion problem of VC is that anyone, if your friend calls you with an idea, you're going to take that call first. Mm -hmm. And when you're getting an influx of people, it's hard to break through that noise. Mm -hmm. So we try to, we try to mitigate the intro influence and put it through the same process as everybody else. Um, I think that um, one of the people who's best at this is Unshackled on the West Coast. So they have a, an online process that you go through no matter who you are, um, which is great. We like to be somewhere in the middle because we have so many people that are out there in the world seeing things that we just don't have time to see. So now we have founders that are out there that send us things investors that send us things and all the firms that we invest in, there are going to be people who naturally think to go to breakaway that aren't going to think to come to me. And so um, we leverage those. Definitely. We say no to about 150 to 200 people that we meet for every yes. And we, once you meet someone at our firm, it's a, it's a level playing field. I love all of our co-investors dearly. I love working with them. We each have our own individual processes that we want to go through and our own individual things that we're looking for in the company. So even if it's an intro from another firm or an investor of ours, they still have to go through the process with us. Now, once you do make the investment, like what uh, can the entrepreneur expect from Mendoza, you know, post-investment? They get, um, I always think of, it looks different every week. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was saying, think of a good example of what we did this week. So, um, so usually it's a lot of text messages. <laughs> um, they get a they get a reserved weekly phone call with a partner. Um, and so, what that looked like for me this week was helping one founder prep for a board meeting that he has coming up this week. I just joined the board of another company, um, Listo in San Jose, which is great. We're really excited about that too. I'm the first woman on their board. They are awesome, <laughs> um, and and it's a combination of having that weekly spot where they know that they have someone that they can just fire questions at who will lean into the company a little bit and help them out. And then also um, 10 PM on Saturday night, we're usually having a glass of wine and talking to a founder and doing a puzzle or something like that after the kids are in bed. That's so cool. Now, and, and 
you know, obviously every investor had to go through this transformational shift once COVID hit, like every industry. So how did you, how did that affect your investment? Like from the moment when, you know, March last year where everything was kind of like hunkering down to, uh, I remember the first couple of months were pretty scary. I was talking to, you know, people in, in venture back companies and they, they, you know, the, what their boards were telling them as far as runway of what they needed, it was, you know, very reminiscent of, you know, the 2008, 2009 cycle, but luckily tech was resilient. Thank God. Um, but anyways, so how did that, you know, change your ability to make the investments that, you know, coming into the year versus a pandemic? Yeah, we were, we, we were very fortunate that we had done a couple of things to set ourselves up for success before the pandemic. So one of those things was I graduated undergrad in 2004 and grad school in 2010. From the day that we started this firm, I literally said, what about the recession? And then I feel like for the past five years, <laughs> everyone in finance has been saying the recession is coming, the recession is coming. And so we were very cognizant of that long before the pandemic happened um, and made our investments accordingly. And so one of the questions in our diligence is, is this a nice to have or a need to have? Um, and if it's a need to have, we'll invest in it, um, whether it's B2B or B2C. And so, so that was one thing that we did really well. I think the other thing that we did really well um, is that um, we're parents and we had set ourselves up to be a little bit more flexible earlier um, and we had tag team that. And so I feel like my kids were Zoom bombing before it was cool. And I was just really <laughs> glad that now it's cool. Right, yes. <laughs> um, and in terms of raise, it, in a sense, it almost helped because on the LP side of a venture capital firm, which is the people that invest in us, you usually do a lot of travel to close right. those to close those people. And so we were very fortunate that people still believed in what we were building and what we're doing and we're having a positive experience with us. And we didn't have to fly to Houston to have coffee. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That was huge for us. I mean, we're this is our second fund. We're still kind of in startup mode. <laughs> so yeah. um, so that was that was huge. And we were able to intentionally meet a lot more people than we would have been able to if we'd been expected to get on a plane for every single one. I have a new Latino investor in Norway. That never would have happened before COVID. <laughs> yeah. it's, it, I mean, when you look at it in those, uh, how business shifted, there was some positive things that came out of it and things like you're talking about that never would have happened. So it's just, uh, you know, it's crazy that a pandemic had to affect these changes, but there was some different way of thinking that came out of it that ended up being a benefit. I think that the other positive thing for us too was that we joked that we used to walk down to Newbury Street to be on Zoom all day anyway, because we we have portfolio companies in London, Toronto, and the Valley, and so and in Austin. So we we were always doing this already. And so it wasn't a massive cultural shift for us to say to our founders, okay, I'm not going to see you next week like we planned, but let's still get through all the work which was nice. Yeah. So uh, you, your, your career path into venture capital was starting your own firm. Mm -hmm. um, but we do need more uh, diverse investors in venture capital firms. And there's different career paths of how people get there. So what advice would you give for anyone that is aspiring to be a venture capitalist on how to enter the industry? Hmm. I mean, if you can go to HBS, it seems like everybody else went to HBS. <laughs> that is one <laughs> that path, seems yes. like a really good entry to be made. <laughs> I did not go to HBS, so don't worry. <laughs> um, yeah, I think develop a track record as early as you can. And even if it's starting with a 5K check, show that you can go out there and meet somebody and do whatever you can to start developing your own track record. If you cannot write the 5K check, just start working at any venture capital firm and tackle the partners until they trust you enough to give you the track record. So it can, I think for us, you know, we were very fortunate that we were able to make that first investment out of our own money and start our track record that way. But that's not the case for everybody. And so if you can work at a corporate venture firm or work at another venture firm and get some best practices under your belt and then go from there. Um, and don't be shy about asking to be included in things. So our intern, Kaylin, is great. 
and he looks at my calendar and says, can I join this meeting? Can I join this meeting? Um, and sometimes it's no, and that's fine, um, but he keeps asking. And that's, that's an incredible skill. And Sebastian, our last intern, did the same thing. And now he's working at a startup in Toronto. So um, just be aggressive about, you know, sticking your foot in the door wherever you can to get more transparency into the process. Yeah, no, that's so true. And I'm just going to double down on, you know, the because uh, I've, I've had this conversation with lots of other uh, investors on the podcast. And if you want to land in VC, start to become that domain expert, like start digging into your own thesis, identifying portfolio companies, and just start doing all this research that VCs generally do and start sharing it with the VCs and say, hey, I've done this and here's the entrepreneurs and I've mapped all this out. It just shows you have the competency and the intellect for that job. And eventually if you're hustling, you'll hopefully have a VC that's like, wait, this person should be an associate on our team or whatever you know, title. So. I also will say, if that is the case, and you are not a white male, try and find a firm that has other people who are not white males at the partner level, because it just makes it all a lot easier. Um, because if you're, if you're the only person like you in any situation, and you're self advocating, it's hard. And so if you can find a buddy wherever you are, um, to help get you into that room, it's a lot easier to get your foot in the door when someone's opening it from the other side. <laughs> Yeah, true. And yet, don't be shy to reach out to people then, right? So if you see mm -hmm. someone that's at a VC firm that you think, wow, that could be a good person just to, you know, get on Zoom for like most people are open to helping, you know, very few people just shut the door like, oh, I will not speak to you. It'd be like, you know, hey, I was wondering if I get a couple minutes of your time just to ask you some questions, thinking about a career path into venture capital, you accomplished it, what, what can I do? I think the response would be pretty high of people saying, sure, happy to jump on Zoom for 15, 20 minutes, whatever, so. Yeah, when we were starting out, um, I tackled Sam Shank, who founded Hotel Tonight, um, just to ask him questions about a hospitality startup that we were looking at. Mm -hmm. And he, I think it was the last cup of coffee ever had in person, but he and Adrian ended up finally getting coffee together last year at Airbnb. And it's those relationships that you can build when you're just starting to look at something turn into career influencers. Yep. Um, and also have a very specific ask, you know, can I have a half hour of your time to ask you about these three things? Because um, I think anyone who has any kind of footprint on the web gets tackled with ass. And if you know it's something that you can do, you're much quicker to say yes. And you just nailed another thing that I've heard out there, like a pet peeve type of thing. Don't say, hey, can I pick your brain? Because that is a very nebulous, well, what do you want to talk about? Like why? Like, But yeah. if you're very specific, hey, I've got these one, two, three things I would like to talk to you. They're like, okay, I can help. And I you know, obviously would love to spend time to discuss it through. So makes sense. All right. So what you've seen a lot of uh, pitches. So what are common pitch mistakes that you see from entrepreneurs? <laughs> uh, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, Separate podcast. Hospitality too, so it's a high bar for graphics. Right, right. <laughs> um, so, so, well, part of it too is that we're a diverse firm. And so we used to always say when we were meeting in person all the time, the hello is half of the pitch because we've had men ask me to go get the coffee and we've had women hand Adrian their jacket. <laughs> so, okay. Okay. So it's like, <laughs> we know what biases are as soon as they meet our team. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's, I've, I've been, it's been nice to see that part of it go away a little bit in COVID. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple of different things. I think that there's a lot of really good information out there now on how you can get yourself ready to pitch. Um, and a lot of really good sample decks that have circulated the internet um, so that there's enough meat and potatoes that you could pull together a pretty decent pitch before your first meeting. And I think the most common mistake I see is people not doing that, you know, just, just not investigating enough or not even putting the effort in to, to make it professional enough to appeal to someone who didn't have the same idea in their head. So I guess it boils down to like explaining the idea in a really palatable way so that someone who didn't think of it alongside you can get on board with what you're trying to do. And should that be in the form of a pitch deck or should it be like just an elevator pitch, both? All the things. Yeah. I mean, when we started, when we started this, um, I told every, I told the PTO I was starting a venture capital firm. I told everybody. And one of our first investors ended up being from the PTO. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
I live in Brookline, so it's a little predictable, but like, um, but tell, tell everybody and just practice it. I would also say, be an exceptional editor of yourself and what you put out there into the world that represents your company. Because there is, I think, yes, there's a lot of good examples and there's a lot of advice out there now, but make sure that you're taking the advice from people who've been where you've been who've successfully executed on what you're trying to execute from and who aren't just trying to get in front of you and get your attention because you're a founder. Yeah. All right. So there are uh, two companies that you're aware of that aren't investments. They're not portfolio companies, but you you find really interesting and exciting. Ooh. um, I get, there's so much I'm excited about. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot going on. It's good. There's a lot going on and there's, there is a whole trend of um, the intersection of artificial intelligence and ethics now that I'm very excited about. Um, we see this a lot in venture capital because um, you know, if you try and train up an algorithm on investing history, what is that history made of before like this year? <laughs> it's all You're training up an algorithm on the success of white men to execute in a field of white men with like a 2% error rate, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so so if you train data, what does that say about your execution of that data in the marketplace? And there's a lot of really interesting companies coming up in that space that we're starting to track. Um, A a local one is Monitar AI. Um, And so that's, that's been really interesting. And then in cybersecurity, we're starting to see more realistic um, cybersecurity companies that are out in the world executing. And that is also really exciting to see. I feel like cybersecurity for a very long time was either very nebulous or if it was actionable, it was acquired in like three months. <laughs> um, and, and now we're getting to the spot that there's this universal acknowledgement that this has to exist in the world and how do we do that? And so that's, that's, another, that's another one that we're tracing really closely. Okay. What are three apps you can't live without? Ooh, um, the first one that came to mind is Clubhouse because I have been on Clubhouse a little bit this week, okay. but I think I'm okay. I think I could live without it. <laughs> I, I think it's a fad. I'm, I, I said this on a previous podcast and I'm, uh, I'm just going to stick with it. I, I, it's another thing like, so adventure fizz, it would make logical sense for me to have a whole Clubhouse strategy. Cause it's content, it's, you know, talks it's, you know, it's basically planning events, just, um, I'm like, I can't handle another channel to start to build a brand and start, you know, to plan a strategy around. It's just, uh, and then I started getting notifications and it was like overwhelming and I just deleted it off my phone. It's, it's noisy. It's definitely noisy. And, um, but so I teach at Suffolk University and um, since we've been remote, I've noticed that the students don't like video. Like they don't like the expectation of video, whereas it doesn't bother me as much. And I think that for them, it might be amazing because then there's just no expectation that you'd have to have your video on and it's not like a social stance if you turn it off. So I might be ageist in my dislike of Clubhouse. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, <laughs> and Dries and Horowitz, they kind of know what they're doing. So I'm sure there's a major uh, uh, investment that they'll be happy that they made that I just am not the right person for it. But, uh, but yes. I think they may have just done it because Ben Horowitz is on there all the time. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> totally. Um, and then another one is, so Wallet um, is doing, they're rebuilding Main Street. And so they're creating discounts for local shops. And so I'm a big fan of auto pizza. So all my auto pizza orders have been coming through Wallet lately. And that's one of those nice little, like you save a few percentages and you're saving a local business while you're doing it. So I'm hmm. all about that one. That's cool. Um, and then I know I mentioned Finch earlier, but they just pushed a product update and I'm really excited about it. And mm-hmm. I really like it. And so I've moved um, kind of like our on the side savings where you, you know, you have an extra five bucks and you throw it over um, to see if it'll, I've pitted it actually against my Robin Hood and I'm seeing how I'm doing. So far Finch is winning, but they're more responsible. So they would. <laughs> I did not buy GameStop though, just full disclosure. <laughs> <For the record. laughs> my portfolio was not affected by GameStop. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, any book or podcast recommendations? Oh, um, I really like How I Built This by Guy Raz. And I think that that's maybe a little cliche saying that as a VC, but I really, 
I really like how he takes the founding of a company and he turns it into a story that's enjoyable. It's almost like B-School and This American Life Had a Kid. And it's like a good, it's a, it's a good introduction to the founders of people that I don't know. I'll have to figure out what it is about how he interviews, but it feels much more transparent than I do like the startup podcast, but they get really like, bro, I scaled. And it just, I like his tone a little bit, a little bit better. So I've been listening to that one a lot lately. He's my mentor. He doesn't know me, but uh, he's my mentor. <laughs> See, you but should tell him, reach out. <laughs> I feel sure. Like I, I do mention his name like fairly often because it's how I built this is, uh, is it's amazing. I mean, his interviews, his style, his approach, what he gets people to open up about. Uh, I, he just, you know, it's definitely what I aspire to be. What do you like to do for fun outside of work? You're obviously busy running a fund. You have a family. You're busy. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a big, I love to play outside. So <laughs> um, I'm usually on the water. Um, I'm from Cape Cod and this summer I taught Adrian and a couple of our friends how to cohog, which was a lot of fun. Okay. Um, usually something like that. I'm usually in a sailboat when I can be. I'm really looking forward to getting back to cocktail hour. I miss, co- I miss like a good cocktail hour that you wear really uncomfortable shoes for. I'm excited about that. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Very cool. Well, Senefer, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great work you guys are doing at Mendoza Ventures, and obviously all the great advice. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.